So I'm sitting alone in my downtown Tulsa apartment. And I've been thinking about restarting this podcast. And I would be doing this podcast solo because Sarah and I separated a year ago and we are divorcing. I am divorced. So I feel as though I may need to tell about that, that I may need to tell the story of we are no longer together. I am a completely different person now. Not only because of divorce, but after I left New York, I went through some significant internal journeying and devoted my a vast majority of my time to contemplation, meditation, internal work. And I, I do, I want to tell that, that story because this podcast has been me sharing my journey and it, needed a pause for me to stop and be and become. But I, I feel like I'm getting to a place now where I may be able to share some of this publicly and feel good about that. So let's just pretend that that is what I'm doing right now. Where to start? The story of Sarah and I is we got married at 18 and 19. We began dating at 16. I was 13 whenever uh, I, I felt an internal voice tell me that I was going to marry her. So it has been a long relationship. I'm 32. We were uh, technically married 13 years. Um, we love each other deeply, but we're not in love with each other. And we've never been able to make a marriage work. We've been able to make a really amazing friendship work, um, a creative partnership work in seasons. We, we had a magical relationship. We have a magical relationship. It's obviously different now, but we remain friends and we talk. I, I, I believe our relationship outside of our marriage will continue to grow. Um, but right now we are taking, you know, time. Uh, we haven't been with each other for six months plus of like really not talking and seeing each other only a couple times, but been separated for a year and have been struggling 
for many, many, many years. We had intimacy issues from the beginning. Um, a lot of it stemmed from our fundamental evangelical Christian upbringing and the shame associated and the family dynamic of male leadership perpetuated, celebrated, and taught. And when done correctly can be a absolutely beautiful partnership of symbiotic relationship of male female dynamics of give and take where both people choose uh, each other at all moments and lead each other but uh, the way that it is wrongly taught it's it's like it puts a lot of responsibility on the man and a lot of submission for the woman and there was like a, a struggle with all those things uh, and more. But as we both deconstructed faith and the, the way we were raised and taught and our, basically our entire nurture, as we deconstructed our nurture, um, we came out of that and we moved past, you know, a lot of these things, but there was a lot of baggage that, we just never were able to make it work. And it came to a point where it became clear we needed to leave New York. Each of us in our own ways and together were deteriorating. And going to Portland was we needed to leave New York. We didn't want to go home, went to Portland. My journey, we will get to, uh, but the relationship journey that we're on you know, in this story, uh, just kept, I mean, it just, we were both falling into depression. Uh, I mean, Sarah had been, has been struggling with depression our entire marriage in seasons of severity. And a lot of the decisions that I and we made were always, it always included Sarah's mental health. All of our, I mean, I had my own, a lot of my own personal reasons for all the decisions and we had a couple uh, like goal things, you know, just lots of dreams that led the decision making. But one of the things that was always a part of every decision was Sarah's mental health and, and me feeling responsible for doing whatever needed to happen for her to thrive, for her to live, uh, be able to, and... I mean, all of my personal decisions were also were affected by that desire, that responsibility, uh, felt need. And when we landed in Portland, uh, it was the next like thing. And, you know, uh, it was, it was evident immediately, um, that this, this, even this newness isn't helping, <laughs> uh, you know, Doing something new uh, can be exciting, and once the newness wears off, then all the feelings come back. But it is, this was uh, apparent. Um, even the new and the amazing, uh, the wonderful, even that isn't helping. We're just, uh, we know this, you know, we just know. So we begin to have like some very, very open conversations, just 
really, I mean, talking it out and making a plan of knowing we want each other in our lives, but also knowing this is not uh, working. Sarah had been wanting out for a long time, many years, and I could, I could, would not accept that fate or outcome. It was my life's biggest project was keeping us together and getting us to a point of thriving, doing whatever work necessary for us to get to a point to break through whatever this wall is that is keeping us from truly locking into a magical, thriving relationship. <laughs> and it just, it, it wasn't going to happen. So I, I was in denial and in for a while. <laughs> uh, and it's, it is what it is, but we just worked it out. Um, I mean, I don't know how important it is to get into all the nitty gritty, whether or not that is useful for you or, you know, sacred for me or protecting of Sarah. I don't know. But I think in the end, the short is irreconcilable differences a, a conscious uncoupling and we're now still really good friends, but we are no longer married and my life has changed drastically. I don't know if there's anything left to be said. Um, it, it was, uh, for me, I guess if, if, if this is transitioning to be a solo podcast, um, and now, uh, I'm talking about, me and what the things that I'm deeply curious about and uh, how I got here, um, why I do what I do. 2021 was the worst year of my life. Um, if you've read Haruki Murakami's The Wind-Up Bird, I was in a deep well, a deep, dark pit with no light in sight and could not move. This the deepest depression I have ever felt. Uh, I was grieving, mourning, just weeping, convulsing. I have never experienced that level of low before it it really changed how empathetic i can be towards suffering and anxiety and depression um grief loss i could sympathize before but Nothing like an internal capital K knowing. I'm out of the well. I am, the sun is shining on my face and I am enjoying every moment of it. Uh, I am, I am so, so happy. <laughs> it's insane. I have been loving 
the company of myself. I've never been truly alone ever in my life. Been with Sarah since 16, left my parents' house with Sarah. We have been in the same room almost every single one of those days. If it was a pie chart, there would be a small, just give me a small slice of the amount of time that we were apart in the in course of that uh, 12 year period. And being alone just allowed such freedom. Uh, Virginia Woolf, a room of one's own. Just how the, the importance, the beauty, the, the necessity of being alone. You don't need to be uh, single and literally alone um, to be alone. You can have a room of one's own and be have a relationship where you uh, cohabitate with other people. Uh, but that isn't something that I practiced or Sarah practiced because we made decisions that didn't allow us to do that. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that this that our divorce would have happened later at the very least if we would not have lived in a studio apartment for the last four years of our marriage our, our problems existed when we had uh, lots of bedrooms and we had the ability to be alone our uh irreconcilable differences were there then so the studio apartment did not kill our relationship. However, I do believe that it expedited the process, as did the pandemic for a lot of relationships. We actually were given space during lockdown, which is the opposite story of for many people. But I, I spent most of my time uh, in 2020 alone. Uh, even though there were people around. But being alone, being alone and being out of the, the relationship, so gain, uh, gaining a new kind of freedom of not having to have a concern about my decisions in regards to you know, being in a relationship, I discovered pieces of myself that I had forgotten about where I was suppressing, they weren't allowed out, not, not allowed by Sarah, just, it just the circumstances of my life choices. And I just, I just discovered things about myself that I love, that I missed or didn't even know. And I find now that very few people can give me the quality of company that I can give myself. I love being alone, but I'm not alone. I feel in community with myself, the me, the we, the I, the us. I've been reading a lot of poetry, which is a direct result of Sarah in my life. I'm going to talk stream of consciousness and not tell any sort of linear story. 
Um, I'm going to flip back and forth between the Sarah story, the me story. I think it's the only way I can do this. I am a product of Sarah as much as she is a product of me. Um, and it's so beautiful. Uh, I, I feel so blessed and thankful, grateful for that relationship in my life. I mean, the person that I would be today would, would be half of the quality that I am. Uh, but Sarah on her way out the door, the last gift she gave me was leaves of grass by Walt Whitman. And this was a conversation that we had been having for a while. Um, the, the, I contain multitudes and she inscribed it, Cody, we contain multitudes, love Sarah. And that is a beautiful, beautiful gift. And as I've been reading Walt Whitman, I have felt so understood in a way that only the true artists, poets, and saints can make me feel understood. Which is to start at the end of my journey. Whenever I moved to New York, it was, it was in a, I've, I've been in pursuit of freedom uh, my, my whole life. There's just something been inside me. Uh, I, I've been hearing what I call the voice of God, Holy Spirit, intuition, knowing the gentle whisper of the soul, love. There is just something that when I sit and listen, I hear leading. And that has somehow been a part of me since I was a child. And I have remained on that spiritual journey of listening and the pursuit of freedom and breaking down all of my nurturing. What are the things that I have been taught to believe that aren't true that are keeping me from freedom? And New York was just the next stage in that. And I went through my existential crisis, my full deconstruction of the American way, capitalism, consumerism, and because it, because it was a mecca of that, uh, the grind, the capitalist mecca. And I lived, you know, in that world, in that life, and uh, I was always a business guy. And yet I, in that moment, in those moments, saw there is no fruit. Freedom cannot be bought. I had been intellectually taught that, but I went through the experience. I witnessed it with my own eyes and came to a experiential-based knowledge that it cannot be bought in the work of gaining more. 
And that was my last remaining external piece. I deconstructed the external world, uh, the built world, the society, uh, the, the political truths of collective unknowing. <laughs> and I broke all that down and got to the point where I knew I needed and wanted to devote myself my next season to internal exploration. I said that publicly. <laughs> I believe that my, my personal line was New York takes every available resource for external survival and growth and uh, I, I want to move to Portland to create ample margin for internal growth and reflection. And I did that. Um, that's the journey I went on. Uh, I went, uh, it, it, it started immediately. We went on our road trip across America, New York to Portland with DC, Nashville, Tulsa, Grand Canyon, Southern California, all the way up the coast. And on our Oklahoma stop, it's where I am from. And my dad had just in the time of me leaving and coming through now, uh, had opened a marijuana dispensary. And I was also moving to Portland where it is recreationally legal. So I knew that the possibility and probability of me having the opportunity to consume cannabis was very high. Uh, so I decided I want my first time to be with my dad. So I asked my dad to, if he wanted to do that. And he said, absolutely. <laughs> uh, one thing to note about this story is that he was not the uh, weed guy uh, in this business. He was the finance guy in this business. Um, so he came into it with the business aspect and the partner brought in the weed knowledge. So my dad didn't know a thing uh, and went into his a dispensary he owned and asked for a pre-roll and the bud tender said, oh, well, this is the best one we have and gave it to him. So my very first time smoking cannabis was a something called a coffee cone or cavi cone that is a, an infused joint that has the ground cannabis flower. It has concentrated hash oil. It is sprinkled with keef, which is the high potent uh, THC dust, then sealed m with more hash oil and was, uh, claimed to have upwards of 52% THC, which the like high end of weed now is around the, the mid twenties THC. So even double that. And I went on a cannabis trip, a full on 
trip. It was an insane, amazing, life-changing, like, moment. The significance that it had immediately was I came to the knowing that the levels of consciousness that are available to me vastly outnumber the levels of consciousness that I was living at in my everyday existence up until that point. And that was the internal journey, was unlocking all of these, all the full nature of consciousness. The removal of mind into being. And the, that first trip revealed a lot of work that I needed to do. The, I, 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 I've always been me. In that moment, I was me. I was just a hyper extended and aware version of me, uh, versions. And I was listening to myself in all of what I have. And, um, I've, I'm, I'm a very interested person. I was there. So I'm asking these questions as like a, um, armchair psychologist, like, oh, I'm having this thought. I'm saying this thing. That's interesting. That's an insecurity that I, that is whatever I thought in the moment. And I came out of that experience with a list of things that I was curious to work on. And I began to now deconstruct internally um, as I had been deconstructing the external world down to its basic truths, which is what led me inside. So I began moving forward with this new uh, knowledge and curiosity and devotion to the internal journey. And I go to Portland and I continue seeking a much more authentic, ecumenical, broad, deep, true version of the Jesus gospel. The culmination of my deconstructing fundamental evangelical Christian uh, American upbringing. And I deconstructed it to a beautiful place that I needed, I needed to experience. But as I continued to open and continued to deepen and find the peace, the absolute bliss of stillness and quiet, my internal life began to uh, completely unlock the things that were trapped were coming out and healing. And I was experiencing an interconnected symbiotic relationship with the universe that I crave at every moment to be 
the witness, the observer, to pay attention to the present moment and be the present moment. To witness my own breath inside of me. To feel the intelligence of the body. To be inside my body. I lived up until this point in my life an entire cerebral existence. I was a, a, a thinker, a full-on head person. And there was this moment sitting on the shore facing west, having smoked cannabis, the most gorgeous nature, earth surrounding me. And in a moment of true stillness, God revealed and spoke to me in such a clear, cosmic, unexplainable, yet fully knowable voice and said, God is love. God is love. And in that moment, my heart connected with my head for the first time. A just surge, a welling, a tether was connected and I began to feel and feel infinite to feel my consciousness merge with the universe. I am me, but we are all interconnected, singular consciousness, witnessing the world through billions of eyes, through trillions and trillions of atoms, beyond trillions of atoms, infinite atoms of love. That God is love. And love is the only thing that binds the entire cosmos together. And potentially... In the words of James Finley, at the count of three, if God was to cease loving, at the count of three, everything would cease to exist. Love is the answer. Love is the mystery of the universe. There is such a deep inner knowing that this is true. That I began to see it. It began to find me. Books would just find me on my journey and it would be the next right thing. I would read and feel understood and known 
and I would see the cosmos open up into the infinite knowing of, of love. And as these things continued to find me through literature and poetry, I began to become me, the artist, no longer a creative stuck in my head, but an artist living and witnessing in my heart. And I began to know that the true mystics, the true artists, poets, and saints are all in servitude of the ineffable message of love. That there is no universal language for the message, the way of love. And it works through the consciousness and creates. And through that experience, that's that spiritual awakening, it unlocked the truth about my own life. I was able to see the things that I was missing in me, um, that I was a, I was codependent, um, spoken, you know, directly. It was like a download of God is love and you're codependent. And it was the same just clicking from whenever I was in New York and I just woke up one morning and it was, you're having an existential crisis. And I had to look it up. You know, it was like, got up in the morning, knew that just had to Google existential crisis. And oh my God, I am absolutely having an existential crisis. It was like, you're codependent. And yes, I was in a traditional codependent relationship you know, where we are both codependent of each other and have the dynamics of a um, clinical codependent relationship. And then just the anecdotal codependency of just never being able to be apart and like always needing each other to um, go do new things and not having a truly separate identity. Neither, either one of us. We were just a we there was no individuality coming together and so that has been like very beautiful on this other side of my spiritual journey leading to a awakening leading into a season of giving the opportunity after taking essentially a year-long sabbatical and then moving into lockdown and extending that sabbatical to a radical ability to be alone and sit in, in silence and study mysticism. And I became the most monk-like that I could be in the circumstances that I was in uh, and just sat in 
long, long sessions every day of silence, just listening, what I call prayer. In a famous interview with, I believe, Dan Rather, Mother Teresa was asked, when you talk to God, what do you say to him? And she replied, I don't say anything. I listen. And the follow-up question was, what does God say? And her response was, he doesn't say anything. He listens. And she added, and if you don't understand that, there is nothing more I can say to help you. Paraphrased. And that is, is, is it. Um, there, I am now the, a, a mystic. You could potentially say a Christian mystic, but that would only be because I personally choose to live my mystical life inside the Christian church as my personal journey of being and becoming love and hoping I can help any other travelers along their way. So there was a lot said and also a lot unsaid in this episode. Sarah and I's story, my personal uh, story and journey, my physical existence of what all I have done, what I am doing, that will be topics of later discussion. But to wrap it up for this episode, I will share the opening of Leaves of Grass so that Walt Whitman's words in this 150th anniversary edition can speak for me. Leaves of Grass, Song of Myself. I celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. And to add a quote by Mother Teresa, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. Mm -hmm.